0: Hello, and welcome to A Health Policy. Today, we are bringing you a special live episode. In today's episode, David Blumenthal, president of the Commonwealth Fund, interviews Mickey Tripathi, the current national coordinator for health IT. The conversation took place on July 1st, 2021, and was part of a policy spotlight series from health affairs. This is a live event, so the audio is a little different from regular health Policy episodes, but the content is no less insightful. Thanks for listening, and sign up for our daily newsletter to stay up to date with health affairs events.
1: I'm David Blumenthal. Uh, I'm currently the president of the Commonwealth Fund, which is a uh, national philanthropy devoted to improving the performance of the health care system. I am also a former national coordinator for health information technology from 2009 to 2011, uh, so it's a very special privilege and pleasure for me to have the opportunity to talk with our current national coordinator. I also owe Mickey a debt of gratitude because he was an important advisor to our work early on in the High Tech Act, uh, serving on some of our advisory committees and helping us formulate some of our original meaningful use and standards regulations back in the day. Nikki aside before his current role, uh, was a pioneer in the, in the world of health IT interoperability, uh, running the Mass eHealth Collaborative. Uh, he's also had multiple other senior roles in the IT space, a number of them devoted to interoperability and its promotion. Uh, he was the project manager of the Argonaut Project, uh, and he's been a board member of HL7, the Sequoia Project, the Commonwealth Health Alliance and the Karen Alliance. So very few people uh, more qualified to hold the role he has uh, than he is right now. uh, And uh, very much look forward to a conversation with him. So let me start Mickey by asking a a general question. um, And that is from your standpoint, what are the priorities for the administration with respect to health information technology?
2: Um, yeah, great. First off, thank you, uh, David, and thank you to the Commonwealth Fund and to Health Affairs for the opportunity to be here today. And um, uh, always a delight to be with you. And, you know, in any of the hard questions, I'm going to pitch back to you since you're a qualified <laughs> answer on as well. <laughs> um, yeah, so, uh, uh, yeah, I, you know, a few things that I would, uh, you know, that I would highlight in terms of, you know, ONC priorities, obviously, you know, first and foremost, uh, you know, um, helping to do everything we can with respect to uh, the COVID response, which you know things. Um, you know, have been have been looking relatively good in this country and turning the corner. But we know we're not completely around the corner, and there's um, still a lot of work to do for us to get back to um, you know where we want to be. Um, and so, you know, everything that we can do, and that's you know related to very specific things um, related to helping to you know try to help with uh, with scheduling, um, trying to help with vaccine information availability, um, and doing a lot of work with um, with the CDC. Um, particularly with regards to an executive order related to evaluating uh, the public health data system response um, uh, to uh, COVID and what lessons can we learn from that experience that can help inform uh, you know, how we can have a, um, a, data, a better data driven response to high consequence public health like COVID going forward. So that's, you know, that's top of mind for, you know, for ONC as well as all agencies. We also have a bunch of other things that we need to keep doing um, uh, as well, and so you know a couple of those that I would flag are one, you know certainly the implementation of the 21st Century Cures Act, um, which was passed and signed by President Biden, uh, President Obama, uh, and Vice President Biden in 2016, and uh, has some you know very fundamental um, uh, components to it that are you know just really just vital aspects of how we're going to think about interoperability in the future. Uh, The two that I would call out are one, the information blocking. Um, uh, uh you know um uh, parts of that rule which are about uh, information sharing it's really uh you know something that should be called information sharing not information blocking which requires uh organizations to make information available to patients as well as other providers um, through apis that um, uh, are accessible without uh, special effort was this was a particular reason i'm happy to dive into the details of that um you know as we as we uh, um as we continue um the second is related to nationwide interoperability. It's called TEFCA, the Trusted Exchange Framework, uh, which is about creating a governance model to have more seamless integration of the various alpha IT networks that are out there in the market today.
1: So you've opened up uh, two issues that I do want to drill down on. One is uh, the public health data infrastructure, uh, which we are all acutely aware of as to its failings in recent, in the pandemic. Uh, and. I don't think that's a a criticism of any particular group or or agencies, but it just reflects years and years and years of underinvestment in our nation's public health infrastructure. And the second has to do with the implementation of the Cures Act. So let's talk about the public health infrastructure priority to start with. Now, I know that you are uh, formulating policy with respect to that. So all the answers may not be in, but if you had to guess where policy would take us with respect to developing the decentralized, uh, diffuse public health information architecture that we need in order to manage pandemics in the future, where would you expect ONC and the administration to lead us? Along with CDC, of course
2: um yeah and then, and you know obviously i mean as you've pointed out you know i don't i'm not going to speak for the cdc on this um but but certainly i'm aware and working very closely with them on uh on the you know, on the investments and, and helping to advise them along the health it um you know parts of the investments that are being made to uh you know that that's all under the uh you know sort of the umbrella of the data modernization initiative that's going on at the cdc right now so you know i think that one of the you know one of the um, uh, you know, one of the, uh, you know, sort of the aspects of, uh, of the COVID response now that, um, uh, that, that we have is that, you know, there are now resources available um, to be able to make some investments. But, you know, one of the challenges that we have is that, um, uh, you know, is how best to make use of those resources. And unfortunately, in some ways, it fits within the historic pattern. Of feast or famine that you know that as a country we've had with with public health after crises we uh, tend to you know inject a whole bunch of money um, and then that money starts to you know fall away and then you know there's a long periods of time in between crises where we you know sort of underinvest in the public health systems and that presents a challenge for making you know sort of a rational sustained investment to create the kind of public health information um, system that you know that, that everyone living in the united states deserves um, so you know I, I certainly the things that we are working on with respect to uh you know uh, with respect to the cdc's program um and we're working very closely with them on some priority areas and so you know i think that you know at, a, at sort of a broad level i think what the you know what the cdc is trying to accomplish is to say how do we create a general ecosystem? Where we think about an ecosystem of data sharing that doesn't have, you know, sort of the stovepiping that we have today. So right now we have the clinical systems which live in one world. We have administrative systems that live in one world, and then we have public health systems which live in a different world, and they don't intersect very often. And I think that, you know, that as we think about the future, what we want to be able to have is an integrated ecosystem where you're able to, you know, have information exchange according to purpose, um, but not stovepiped in these separate. You know, um, often redundant you know ways of sharing information. So I think that's a general goal and there are multiple you know different ways to accomplish it. Um, some of the specific areas that uh, ONC is working on where we have uh, you know sort of capabilities and, uh, and levers that we can help to pull in the direction of supporting that you know that, that vision are you know how do we integrate public health and clinical system interoperability and general interoperability? And and how do we um, enable cross-jurisdiction sharing? Because one of the things that we saw as a part of the pandemic, and we've heard loud and clear from the various jurisdictions, meaning states and local uh, public health entities, is that they had challenges sharing information, you know, upward, sort of a hub and spoke with the CDC, and no ability to share information with each other. And you can imagine the challenge of that when you are, you know, adjacent states, for example, and not being able to share information with each other in 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 an easy manner um, so, the you know, the, area, the areas where ONC can help with that are related to TEFCA, the Trusted Exchange Framework, and we'll have more to share this summer about that. But that is the nation, you know, that is um, called out in 21st Century Cores to provide a nationwide governance framework for nationwide interoperability. And one of the goals that we have of that is to not only have, you know, providers be able to exchange um, information with each other, um, but to have public health. Be a direct participant in that kind of network, so that we don't have, um, you know, the, the challenges that we have today of these kind of silos or independent pipes for public health. But they're a part of a general share information sharing information infrastructure that's, um, you know, that, that's already up and running, but that doesn't yet allow public health to participate. So that's one of the things that I think we can focus on. Another is how do we get better data standardization? One of the things that we saw in the pandemic. Is that um, that, for example, we don't have good lab standardization across the country? So you have public health systems that you know that were getting lab information, and one of the you know one of the uh, you know sort of the anecdotes um, that we know of is that the CDC, for example, had identified two very specific lab codes that labs were supposed to use for COVID tests. And what um, what got reported by a number of organizations was that um, public health systems were receiving two hundred. Different types of lab codes um, representing uh, you're representing mm-hmm. COVID because there was no monitoring, there was no enforcement, there was no requirement that people just you know limit themselves to these two codes. And as, as you can imagine, that presents huge challenges if you're getting those kinds of variations at every public health system trying to trying to deal with that. The other challenge that we saw, um, which is again a nitty gritty on the ground issue, is that is patient matching. So you'd have public health systems that are receiving case reports from um, from, from physician practices or hospitals. And then they're getting a separately um, feed of electronic lab results, but there's not enough demographic information. And there, of course we don't have a nationwide patient identifier. There wasn't enough information for them to do um, with certainty the matching of that data. So you have these separate streams of information, you know that some of them are on the same patient that would give you a better perspective on what it is you wanna do, um, but no ability to match that data. So those are the kinds of things that we saw and better data standardization will help with that. So ONC is directly participating in helping to lead the SHIELD project, which is a project to enhance um, uh, lab interoperability. And we also have um, something called the USCDI, which is the US Core Data for Interoperability, which is a set of standards that, um, that uh, ONC promulgates that are requirements that EHR systems make available in their systems in a standardized way. So we're working very closely with the CDC to see how can we you know, sort of um, have an extension of the US CDI that might directly apply to, um, to public health to be able to have greater standardization of public health data. Um, a couple of other things I'll just, I'll just mention very quickly. Um, how do we introduce fire-based exchange patterns for interactivity with um, with healthcare systems, one of the challenges that we have with current public health systems is that they're essentially a one way flow. It's information that flows from a provider system, let's say, to a public health system without any information coming back. So, if we want to turn this into actionable kinds of things, Fire, which is an emerging you know uh, uh, you know uh, an emerging standard and. In, in healthcare which is an API based you know sort of approach allows that kind of interactivity so you're able to take that information and then public health systems can push back information actionable information based on analysis based on other things that they've done with the data to be able to inform people about you know how best to um, you know how best to do that so there's a variety of things that we're pushing hard on with the CDC to exercise all the levers that we have to help support the CDC and its vision. I'm going to move on past
1: public health one of the many things that occurs to me is, how do you get all the providers who are doing these tests or the various pandemic-related phenomena to adopt the same standards as the public health uh, infrastructure is going to? And maybe that works from that uh, common set of standards that you just discussed as having promulgated um, as part of ONC's uh, mandate. But let me, let me move on to talk about interoperability within the healthcare delivery sector. Uh, it seems to me like there are two prevailing theories for getting interoperability. One is a bottom-up theory and the other is a kind of top-down theory. The bottom-up one is let's, patient, let's make sure that patients can get their data out of either insurance companies or electronic health records. Uh, and we'll find third-party Uh, agents who will collect that data and and collate it and provide it to individuals uh, in a form that they find useful. And the other is the traditional health information exchange uh, prototype that dominated thinking when I was national coordinator, which is business-to-business, provider-to-provider exchange. Uh, How do you see those two working together or coming together? Mickey, and in the case of the provider-to-provider exchange, how do you think things are going with respect to information sharing in the aftermath of the Cures Act and the recent promulgation of the implementing regulations?
2: Yeah, I no, mean it's a great question, and um, and I think you've you know sort of uh, uh, captured the different you know sort of high level concepts uh, uh, nicely. So there is you know I think that there are these two kinds of approaches one might think of. To me, they're they're not you know that it's not an or it's an and um, that you've got to have the B two B essentially um, network, which is provider, provider, provider to payer, um, you know, kind of that back-end interoperability, um, you know, that's, that's got to be there as something that, uh, that, that providers and uh, other healthcare um, institutions can rely on because we need to make sure that they're able to get the information that they need um, without, you know, having any, any, you know, sort of uh, gaps in in their ability to be able to get that information. Um, and, you know, and I think that, that, um, uh, that, that we want to be able to enable, patients to have access to their information and be the conduits of that information if they choose to be. And I think one of the challenges is that we don't know whether patients will choose to be um, those kinds of conduits. There are many patients who may be interested in that. And so we wanna do everything that we can to make that information available to them um, without special effort as 21st Century Cures Act says, um, as you know, just sort of a, a, an ethical and moral as well as legal obligation now to make that information available to them so that they can make the choices that they wanna make about the control about what they do with that information, who they provide that information, um, you know, sort of access to, um, and what you know, other kinds of services that they want to be able to uh you know have uh, uh you know provide availability of that information to um that might live live outside of the traditional healthcare settings um, like their you know hospital or or physician offices. Um but the reason I say that it's an and is that you know I don't think that we you know we don't yet know whether all patients want to do that. I mean, I think that you know that, that for a lot of patients, me for example, I really don't have a whole lot of interest in being at the center of that because I'm afraid that I'll drop the ball. <laughs> and I'd much rather I'd much prefer having the assurance that my providers are exchanging that information, and have it available, um, and that I have access to it should I want it. Um, but I don't want to be the one who's you know that that uh, that, that everyone is relying on. Um, but again, we want to make sure that. Um, that all of those paths are, you know, are available paths for, um, you know, for the multiple ways that, that information can flow um, to be able to serve, uh, you know, all the different use cases that are out there.
1: And how are we doing with respect to information blocking? Have you seen, and I realize that there may not be systematic data about this, but how do you, uh, what are you picking up? What do your antenna tell you about the ways in which providers are relating to one another? And we all know that the Lack of a business case at the ground level for information exchange has always been the most important impediment to information exchange between providers. And so now we have, instead of a business case, a positive business case, we have a, a stick that is wielded over providers should they fail to comply. And how do you see things going?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, that, I think that things are going very well. In the sense that you know, we're starting to get a lot of industry engagement, a lot of provider engagement, technology developer engagement. um, You know, in understanding and wanting to learn more and understand um, you know exactly what information blocking means, um, how they can you know bring themselves you know into compliance with the requirements. Um, And when I'm you know what we're trying to do from an ONC perspective is get as much education and outreach available so that um, uh, organizations understand the compliance aspect of it, but more important. Understand the opportunity aspect of it. Um, so, you know, from a compliance perspective, we are fielding questions, um, you know, every day from organizations, and we embrace, you know, um, getting more and more of those questions because I think, you know, as you know, David, from your time at ONC, um, you know, the it's not a it's not a, a bug of the system; it's a feature of the system that you promulgate a complicated rule. And then you keep trying to clarify, trying to understand people's questions, and keep trying to provide more information to the market about you know about what the rule means, what the rule says about particular circumstances, because healthcare is unbelievably heterogeneous in in this country and very fragmented, and so there's no you know sort of codified rule that is going to cover every circumstance that you know that that exists in every corner of the healthcare delivery system, and so that's very much a part of it. And so I think we're starting to see more and more questions come now that the applicability date um, has come and gone you know, on April 5th, and now- out, you know, it is a requirement to be in compliance with it. Um, so, from that perspective, I think that you know that, that things are going well. That doesn't mean that there aren't concerns, and we certainly have a you know are hearing a lot of concerns. We're, we're speaking with as many organizations as uh, as we possibly can, um, and uh, and you know, seeing uh, doing that in large settings as well as you know more focused settings to understand the concerns that they have and to try to answer as many as many questions as we can. I mean, I am you know, sort of uh, you know, really gratified to see. Uh, a lot of organizations, including my own provider, um, that, uh, you know, it was a surprise to me. I mean, I didn't, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, plant the seed with them, uh, but I logged into the patient portal, uh, you know, last week or the week before um, to to schedule an appointment for uh, my own care. And what I was met with was a banner that popped up that said, we are now embracing patient engagement in an exciting new way. We're going to make results available to you as soon as they are available to us. And then provided some direction about, you know, if you want to be able to talk to your provider before seeing those results, please wait before looking at them and your provider will contact you. Otherwise, if you want to look at them right away, they're available to you. So I think we're starting to see the technology developers as well as the providers starting to embrace what, you know, the nitty gritty and what the details are of information blocking and, and, and more important than the nitty gritty, they're starting to embrace the spirit of it and starting to think about the solutions for moving forward.
1: So I have a, nitty-gritty question that just occurred to me um, and that is who is responsible for enforcing the regulation
2: oh oh my god How much time do we have? Um, no, so it is. It is very complicated. So let me just try to, you know, um, uh, put it in simple terms. Not because the audience is simple, but because it, it would take a lot of time or too much time that we have, um, or probably want to spend on this particular one. But the the law specifies somewhat of a, you know, sort of a, um, a shared responsibility with respect to enforcement. So what the law specifies is that ONC sets the policy on what information, what is information blocking, what are allowable exceptions, which ONC did by rule, which went into effect on April 5th. And then it specifies that OIG, the Office of Inspector General in the Department of Health and Human Services is responsible for enforcement of the rule, which is to say that um, it also specified that ONC will receive complaints Um, from the the public, from actors um, who believe that there is a violation of information blocking that they have encountered, that we will receive complaints that we will pass those to OIG. OIG will determine enforcement. um, And then then, this is where it it gets even a little bit more complicated. What the law specifies is that for um, two of the three types of actors that fall under information blocking, which is to say technology developers and health information networks, um, the law sp- says that they will be subject to civil monetary penalties of up to a million dollars per incident, and it says that OIG will determine, um, you know, whether whether a violation has occurred, and will determine the civil monetary penalties for those. But there is another very important actor in addition to the technology developers and health information networks, which is providers. And what the law says is that the secretary will determine what are called appropriate disincentives for providers who are found to be in violation. Of the um, of the information blocking, and so OIG will determine whether a provider is in violation if a complaint you know subject uh, if a complaint has come in, but then there is a process that the secretary still needs to define with respect to what are the penalties, um, and that's a process that um, uh, that we have uh, you know sort of kicked off. Um, within within the Department of Health and Human Services to figure out exactly you know what how are we going to determine um, you know sort of what are those appropriate disincentives and you know and how will they work so there's more to come on that um, but you know but we are actively working on that to you know to to fill in that last piece of the puzzle which you know I know is a is a great source of um, of interest and you know and a little bit of anxiety for providers because they want to know um, you know what what could be the penalties if they are found uh, uh, to be in violation of the information blocking rule so more to come on that um, it's you know very actively being that. I, the last, the last point I will make is that you know, the law did specifically say that um, that the secretary will determine those appropriate disincentives, and so in theory that could be applied to any funding uh, or program that comes from the Department of Health and Human Services. So that doesn't mean that you know it's not limited to a CMS payment or, you know, MIPS incentive payment, for example, it could be related to any other program um, that an organization participates in that comes under the umbrella of the Department of Health and Human Services, which could be NIH, HRSA, ARC, um, IHS, I mean, there's, you know, a wide variety of programs in in, um, in uh, Department of Health and Human Services that in theory could fall under the umbrella of, of appropriate assessments, but that's being worked on um, right now. I told you it was complicated.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's, it's worthy of our federal government um, in its complexity. We have a couple of questions from the audience. One of them concerns uh, the Biden administration priority around equity and how the data modernization program, uh, I guess at the public health level, but also presumably in the delivery system area, how will it... Uh, accommodate the fact that there are some institutions and parts of the country that are much better resourced than others and the better resourced, the less well resourced ones tend to be those that have larger numbers of marginalized uh, individuals within their cashman areas or within their geographic uh, purview. Uh, so how is that equity thrust, which is so prominent in this administration, figuring into your thinking about the health IT agenda?
2: Yeah, I think there, you know, there are a couple of things to say on that. One is, um, there are certainly more resources being made available to those organizations that work directly in communities that have been underserved and under-resourced in the past. So if you look at you know, the grants coming out of SAMHSA, the grants coming out of um, uh, HRSA for health centers, um, there's more and more money being made available to those organizations that are serving on those front lines. Um, the second thing I would say to it, though, which I think is you know is, is a really important aspect of this, is um, that from an ONC perspective, what we're doing is focusing on what we're calling health equity by design, which is to say, how do we step back and ask ourselves what's the role that health IT can play um, with respect to identifying health inequities where they exist as far upstream as possible um, to be able to identify and perhaps intervene to prevent the healthcare disparities that result. From you know from those health inequities, and so in particular, uh, you know it, it begins with data, and this you know applies to any organization, any hospital, whether it's, whether it's a safety net hospital or you know a well uh, a well resourced hospital, um, you know in a, in a more affluent part of, uh, of you know of the country, um, that uh, you have um, that core capability which is required in a C, in a certified EHR system. And so what we're doing with US CDI, for example, um, is you know working really hard to you know, ask ourselves what kind of data needs to be made available um, or you know needs to be made available for you know for capture in those systems, because all of this starts with data. And to you know, to to quote a health equity expert who we um, uh, had the privilege of talking to um, you know last week, if you know if you're not counted, you don't count. And so we need to be able to start with saying, how do we have that granular information captured, um, you know, to begin with? So we'll have, you know, more information that we're able to share on that with the with the coming US CDI release, which is going to be released um, in the next few weeks here. Um, but it starts with that. But as we think about the entire value chain, it doesn't end with that. Um, because that data has to be appropriately curated, you've got all sorts of issues about the way data is analyzed. We, you know, we know more and more stories about algorithmic bias, for example, and all sorts of other um, implicit and, in some cases, explicit bias that resides in the way that we calculate quality measures, the way we calculate, you know, other kinds of things in the analytics. And then, what are the applications, and how is that surfaced? in systems that people use that can then be turned into actionable workflows. Uh, and I think you start to think about that as an end-to-end problem. And now we're doing a lot of work to say, you know, from an ONC perspective, how do we map the things that we do with respect to health IT into areas that could be areas of focus? So one is data, as I just described. So we're spending a lot of time thinking about how do we get that from the beginning, is to say we have more of that data available in ways that are interoperable, interoperable, shareable, and actionable so that downstream people can make better decisions, and then how do we think about intervention um, uh, more upstream? So a particular example of that, uh, for example, is you know we think a lot um, in the industry of, about SDOH of social determinants of health data, and making social determinants of health data more available in acute care settings. Let's say so that decision making can be more holistic. Um, but that's just, but that's you know, and if you think of, you know, think about the way that works. That's only solving a part of the problem because you're saying I want to get more data from upstream to be able to make interventions downstream but what I really would like to do is make more interventions upstream to prevent the problem you know uh, uh, where it lives and so you, know, you start to think about well why don't we have more interoperability with social service organizations for example to your point you know before we spent a lot of time on in interoperability provider to provider hospital to practice hospital to hospital how about hospitals, a social service agency, so that I can order legal assistance seamlessly in my system, so I can order housing assistance seamlessly from my system in the same way that I would order a lab. We're starting to give a lot of thought to that, and we actually have an innovation award that we'll be announcing later this, um, later this month um, for an organization that's going to be working specifically on developing those kinds of um, uh, capabilities with social service organizations that we hope will provide some scalable um, results and, and lessons for uh, the rest of the industry.
1: Terrific. Do our certification requirements now require the capability to collect race and ethnicity data?
2: Yeah, no, they, they do. There is, um, you know, one of the things, and, and this is an area that we're looking at now in the, uh, in the federal government as well, um, is is uh, how do we capture race ethnicity data in a consistent way, uh, you know, across the government? Uh, you know, everyone who's, anyone who's, you know, sort of um, uh, is familiar with this area knows that there are the requirements for the OMB 5, the five categories that, that, that OMB requires with respect to race and ethnicity. Um, and everything has to roll up to roll up to that. Um, but then there are a variety of other data sets that are used in various places. There's the 2011 HHS survey, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, data sets as, as they're called. And then there's the CDC data set, which is over 900 race ethnicity categories. Um, From an ONC perspective, EHR certification requires that EHRs support the CDC data set, which is to say the most granular of the data sets that I just mentioned, which is those 900 categories. Um, um, The systems are required to support the CDC data set, and they're they're required to support the roll-up into those five OMB data sets. So that's what the systems are required to support. The challenge is that providers aren't necessarily required to record the information at that level of granularity. And that's where you, know, you, you have the rub in terms of the variation that we see out in the market. Some um, uh, some provider organizations are very diligent about it um, and, and do spend a lot of time in their workflows and their front end processes and their registration processes to try to reach out as much as possible to record that information in as detailed a manner as, as uh, the system allows. Others just don't do that, and they record it at the highest level of granularity. So I think we're, you know, a lot of the work that we have to do now is to understand how we can you know have better processes to be able to capture that data. That's you know that, that's both respectful of the of the difficulty from a from a workflow and front end perspective, but it's also sensitive to the fact that um, individuals may not want to share that information for a variety of reasons. And how do we overcome some of those barriers um, to you know help them understand um, that that information can be will be uh, put to good use? and and use securely in a way that will um, benefit them from a care perspective. We just before this meeting, I got off an amazing presentation from UCLA about the um, work that they are doing to do just what I described, which is to say reaching out to patients separately to describe why are we asking these detailed questions about your race, your ethnicity, your (laughs) sexual identity, Here are the reasons that we're asking those to improve your health, and here's how that data is being protected. And I think we need to do a lot more work in thinking about that part of the problem.
1: Um, Does the 21st Century Cures Act require the same level of compliance with regard to interoperability and the capability thereof as it does of providers? Um, That is, are there penalties for developers? the Cerners and the uh, other vendors of the world in terms of making sure that they are fully capable of interoperability? Yeah. Or is that just a certification issue?
2: Yep, no, 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 it's not a certification issue. They are an actor under under information blocking. So the 21st Century Cures Act specified three actors that would be subject to the information blocking provisions. Um, One is providers. One is technology developers, which would include EHR vendors, for example. And then the third is health information networks or health information exchanges. You know, they, they will all fall under the umbrella. So each of those are actors that are subject to the information blocking provisions and the same provisions. So it's you know the same exceptions would apply, the same rules about what constitutes information blocking and what constitutes interference uh, apply to all of them. Um, with the technology vendors and uh, developers in particular, that's as I was describing before, the law actually specifies a, a you know a, a significant penalty, which is a civil monetary penalty of up to a million dollars per incident. And so you can imagine a circumstance where, depending on how OIG might define incident, let's say um, in a particular case, that could run up into the millions of dollars if if one is found to be um, you know knowingly. Um, in violation of uh, or interfering with the, with the sharing of information, if you're a technology developer, so yeah, there's very you know very much our, our rules and penalties associated with it, and technology developers I think are very aware that there's you know um, hard cash uh, monetary penalties there for um, uh, you know for for them if uh, if they're found to be in violation. Great.
1: Let's uh, focus a little more now on, on the uses of information and less on the infrastructure for making information available and this of course, moves us into the area of artificial intelligence. Uh, One of the things that we always early in the history of high tech were hopeful of is that sophisticated decision support would spread rapidly once data was stored in electronic form. Uh, We are now talking much more about the technical work the algorithms that produce decision support. We a lot of that is now called AI and machine learning. Uh, how do you see that ecosystem evolving now? Has the availability of FIRE and APIs created the opportunities that we all were hoping for with respect to artificial intelligence and the decision support that would flow from it? Um, or are the incentives for that still nascent
2: yeah no, so um, I think there's there's tremendous progress um, with respect to you know AI and the availability of data for AI um, which we can talk about in a second um, fire hasn't been a significant contributor to that. Um, uh, specifically, and the, you know, the reason for that is that um, you know, right now we're really at the beginning of fire adoption. There, there, there um, interestingly, even though we've got you know um, rapid adoption of fire-based capabilities across the ecosystem, um, you know, according to ONC surveys, you know, well over eighty percent of providers—that's hospital and ambulatory providers—are are, um, have EHR systems in place today that have some type of fire-based capability in them. But, and that's, that's despite the fact that, there, that um, right now, there is no regulation that requires any of those systems to have fire-based capabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, the regulations that are enforced right now say that, um, that they have to have an API, it's a functional specification that says that they have, an EPI, have to have an API, um, a patient-facing API that has certain functions and provides certain types of structured data. It doesn't specify fire. Despite that, uh, you know, because of the Argonaut Project and number of other fire accelerator activities, um, vendors have embraced fire and have implemented fire as the way to do that. But we still see variation across those systems. Um, The EHR certification rule that accompanies the information blocking rule um, requires that by the end of uh, uh, of, uh, 2022, um, the all the vendors are required to implement a specific version of fire so it requires fire and it points to a specific implementation guide that's pushed out pretty far uh, you know for my taste but you know but as a part of because of the pandemic and other things um, you know over the last couple of years that that they got pushed out a couple of times but that date is there and a lot of vendors are moving forward with fire but back to your question though you know that um, uh, I think that they, you know because more and more data, is now available as structured and unstructured data, and we have you know cloud-based you know sort of uh, uh, you know cloud-based services, cloud-based ways of being able to you know uh, manage and analyze uh, you know large volumes of data from disparate sources. You know we're starting to see tremendous progress and growth of algorithm-based uh, you know approaches, and I think that we're going to start to see more of that as we start to uh, you know as the information blocking rule, for example, starts to require that. E, uh, electronic health information, which is to say more than just the structured data, but all the entire record, uh, quote unquote, is required to be made available starting on October 6th, 2022, which is not that far away. And so you start to say, well, the USCDI, which is now what's uh, you know, required to be made available in a, in, a, um, you know, in, a, in a continuity of care document or in your patient portal, for example, or via FHIR API, that's you know, great, but it's 25, 26 data elements, whatever that is. Um, After October 6th, the requirement is that all data be made available, structured or unstructured. And that lends itself, right? I mean, that that invites um, sort of uh, the application of algorithms to be able to make sense of all that structured and unstructured data. So I think that we're going to start to see an explosion of the use of algorithms to be able to uh, sort of um, take advantage of that um, greater information that will be made available. And we should start to see more and more activity in that space. there are a wide variety of considerations that we need to have. I mean, from an equity perspective, there's algorithmic bias, um, and even outside of equity, there is algorithmic bias, as we know. Um, uh, you know, and you know, there's recent uh, you know discussion in the press about you know about a particular EHR vendor that had an algorithm that was uh, you know developed by some of the providers. I think from six or seven settings that had a certain amount of bias in it, not because it was intentional, but because it's only trained in a certain number of settings. And so you have the question of how applicable? How do we judge the applicability of particular algorithms that are trained in a particular environment? To the broader ecosystem, or in other in other settings, I think that's a you know sort of a question that you know that we're starting to engage in, and it's certainly a big industry question for us. Um, the last thing I'll say is that fire-based capabilities, though, offer the opportunity for us to um, you know have more scalability and replicability and and substitutability of algorithms and other kinds of approaches of, you know, of knowledge and of uh, knowledge analytics. So for example, um, how about, you know, a model and Mayo Clinic is experimenting with this as well as other places where within my system, I can use the algorithms that were developed within my system, but why couldn't I have a fire-based, you know, CDS clinical decision support hooks, a software hook that enables me to bring in an expert algorithm that was developed at Mass General, let's say, and apply it to my data, or that was developed at Johns Hopkins, let's say, so that you can start to choose from which algorithms you want to be able to apply to your data. Fire-based exchange and fire patterns of exchange enable that kind of capability.
1: Now, ONC does not regulate <clears throat> clinical devices, uh, and uh, but some of the algorithms that are going to be circulating and available for installation are going to raise questions about quality and safety or safety and efficacy. Uh, Do you think ONC has a role in that, in the assurance of that the public is protected from algorithms that don't work or that are more than biased, but faulty? Uh, how do you see the, the balance between government and private action to assure the safety of, of consumers when it comes to the use of more and more sophisticated uh, artificial intelligence?
2: Yeah, I think there I, mean, I think there are a couple of dimensions to that. Um, one is that you know that ONC um, you know has uh, has is you know sort of been, Um, interested and very interested and very focused on, you know, thinking about how should we think about safety in general with respect to health IT systems? Um, You know, a number of years ago, we actually, you know, had a proposal that went to the Congress and and was not funded for the creation of a safety center or a couple of safety centers that would start to look at health IT safety in the way that the aviation industry, for example, looks at safety (laughs) in, in you know, sort of a a, a safer forum to be able to have uh, lessons learned um, in a, you know, in a non-judgmental, non-shaming way um, that uh, that allows people to come forward and feel comfortable coming forward with safety issues that have been presented in their particular environments and then be able to share those um, in a way that can help everyone, you know, get better. Um, we're still focused on, you know, trying to figure out what's the right model to be able to have that kind of, you know, sort of approach. And, you know, hopefully we'll have more to share on, you know, on, on any progress that we can make there, um, you know, in the, in the near future. But, you know, that, that said, I also would say, you know, ONC... Is a you know we're kind of a service agency to other organizations so we don't you know have the authority necessarily to just go out and start to you know make make claims to be able to certify systems outside of a particular authority or outside of a particular sort of business um, use case. Um, that said, what we're doing is you know for example, we're working with um, some of our federal partners like the FDA for example and thinking about um, you know how do we get better standardization of the data that they get? Um, and whether it's from an EHR system or, or a device, um, you know, how do we think about that problem of enabling the standards that, you know, that ONC has promulgated and made available for, uh, for um, EHR systems, how do we think about that you know, um, with other systems that are generating clinical data? And how do we think about you know, leveraging those authorities so that we have greater consistency across programs? And let's say if you know the FDA wanted to think a little bit harder about how to you know, put that into their programs, that's where ONC could play a role in saying, well, now we can you know, sort of exercise um, the ability to have standards, the ability to have certain types of certification if it goes that far um, you know, into, into areas where we're not right now because you know, it's really got to come from the business owner um, that sort of drives the business requirement first. And then it's for O1C to come in and say, how can we you know, provide you with the health IT enablement to be able to support the business goals that you're trying to accomplish?
1: So one of the safety aspects of the management of information and data, whether through algorithms and IAI or simply through exchange, is of course, the protection of security and privacy of that data. Uh, we are dealing, of course, with still with the HIPAA framework, which, as we are often reminded, preceded the internet. And at the same time, it's an incredibly difficult task even to contemplate how you would comprehensively re re-work our current privacy infrastructure is How serious do you think the threat to patient privacy is from this proliferation of third parties that are going to have access to patients' data if patients allow them to have it? Uh, And uh, this is an issue that we talked about a lot in the Caren Alliance, uh, Mickey, as you recall. Uh, Where where do you think we stand with that now and what is ONC's role in this privacy uh, protection uh, sphere?
2: Yeah, I, I just the short answer to your question is it's very serious. Um, you know, we've, we're we're now living in a world where you know where the technology, at least you know in the U.S. Um, you know, not true in Europe, but in, but in the U.S. or most of the U.S. Um, you know, California is, you know, has it's has a data protection law, um, which is different than the rest of the country. Um, but in most of where most of the U.S., uh, you know, the, the the technology has outpaced the policy, um, which is to say, you know, as you pointed out, um, you know, we have information. Uh, medical record information, clinical information that is crossing the bounds of HIPAA protection in a way that the individuals who have that information now in their hands don't recognize, first off, which is the first problem, they don't recognize um, that that information no longer has the HIPAA protections that, that they think it has, um, and they don't recognize that um, that there may be ways that their information might be accessed. That if they're not, you know, very very aware and diligent and conscious of, you know, of what they're agreeing to when they start to click through those apps and the fine print on those apps, um, if they're not very conscious of those, um, they might have their data exposed in ways that um, that they really didn't intend um, for it to be um, exposed, and that could have, you know, sort of long lasting consequences for them. So I think it is. a I think it's a really serious problem. It's not new in the sense that you know going on all the way back to, you know, you remember the blue button um, back in the early 2000s, um, which was about making, you know, data available to patients in ASCII files. And then we moved to the, you know, view, download, transmit through, you know, through patient portals. And I remember there was a, you know, a a very vigorous um, and engaged uh, you know, health IT policy committee discussion as we were coming to the um, uh, the the approval of the requirements to have the view, download, transmit requirement um, in the in you know in, in available in patient portals. I um, mean, there was a very vigorous debate at the policy committee about this very issue, which is to say, how do we balance the you know the the desire um, and and the obligation um, to make a patient's data available to them. In applications of their choice, so that they can make choices about what they want to be able to do that with that data. How do we balance that on the one hand with the fact that we are pushing that data outside of the bounds of HIPAA protections um, uh, when we do that? And you know, what's what's the relative balance there? And obviously, as an, as a society, I and mean, I think we've we've you know sort of said well, the balance has got to be on making the information available because we can't, in good conscience, prevent. The patient's right of access using modern internet tools to be able to have access to their information and then what that means is we all have you know sort of an obligation to try to educate individuals as much as possible about you know about the risks that they're taking when they when they do that so onc has you know done a variety of things um to try to you know help that one is to you know make clear to all parties that that education is a fundamental part of you know of, of everything that we're doing here um, the you know the second is that we have you know we have tried to do everything we can to make allowances to the extent that there was confusion in rules, for example, about, you know, are providers or um, vendors allowed to say anything to patients about the apps that they bring? Because, you know, one one subtlety for those who aren't deeply familiar with these rules um, is that, you know, that the requirement um, that that was put into regulation is that um, a provider organization and or their technology vendor is not allowed to prevent a patient from getting information into the app of the patient's choice as long as that app meets the technical requirements um, that have to be publicly available for connection to that, um, to that, uh, to that uh, medical record um, system. And so the, that was drawn with respect to patient empowerment to say that we don't want providers, we don't want technology vendors standing in the way of a patient's being able to access that via the, whatever app they choose and that's their, that's their choice. What we didn't want is to say and you know, and this was where we provided a little bit of clarity that what if a provider or uh, you know providers and technology vendors feel a duty um, you know to, to be able to provide information to their patients if they think that they are um, you know in um, endangering the you know, this privacy security of that information in ways that they may not appreciate So you know we did provide some clarity that says that a provider or a technology vendor um, you know can provide information to a patient if they know that the patient is using an app, <laughs> that has these kinds of threats um, that have been demonstrated. Um, so, um, you know, there's more to come on that. You know, we'll see Secretary Becerra, obviously, uh, being the Attorney General of California, you know, has a, a deep familiarity and knowledge about, you know, these privacy issues. And, um, and you know, so I think that as the administration, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, has a little bit more, you know, sort of time under our belt, uh, you know, hopefully we'll be able to raise that discussion um, to uh, be something that we can work on, um, you know, in the, in the near future.
1: But uh, do you think it's fair to say that Current authorities, current law does not provide the authority that is needed to regulate the management of data and the privacy and security of data outside of the HIPAA provider framework. That is the, the covered entity framework.
2: Yeah, I mean, I am not a lawyer and I'm not, you know, I'm not OCR, but my read, and I think ONC's, you know, a uh, read on this is that 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 is correct, that, you know, the current law does not allow that. And so once you're outside, once you have downloaded that record into your app, um, the app that you control, um, then you're now the only, you know, the the really, you know, state state laws that might provide some protection. And then you have FTC section five, which, you know, provides some protection about, you know, an app's, um, accurately representing what it is they had in their publicly available mm-hmm. privacy statement. But that's, a, you know, that's, that, that's pretty weak protection you know, from my perspective.
1: Sure, sure. I think we're at time and I just wanna thank you, Mickey, for taking the time to be with us and express my uh, appreciation for having you in the role that you're in right now. I think we're all very fortunate to have your leadership at the ONC at this point in time. So good okay. luck to you and we'll be, uh, we'll be checking in I'm sure.
2: Great. Thanks so much, David. I enjoyed
0: it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Podyssey on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.